Before we get started this morning, there are a couple of announcements I do need to make. Uh, it was mentioned in the earlier announcements that Alicia Workman's grandson, Carson, had passed away, and that is incorrect. He is still on a ventilator down at Eggleston and certainly can use our prayers, so continue to remember Carson in your prayers as they try to work out what's going on with him and as he is still on that ventilator. Also, uh, we've mentioned some who have lost loved ones, and one family that also lost a loved one we need to remember is the Wooten family. Melissa Wooten's father passed away on Friday. His uh, visitation will be uh, tomorrow, and then his funeral will be on Tuesday, both here, I believe, in town at Flan Flanagan's, I believe. So please also remember Melissa Wooten and the Wooten family and their time of loss as well. With that being said, let's uh, turn our attention to 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, as we continue our study of the seven attributes that Peter tells us we are to add to our faith. And this morning we come to the third term in the list, which is knowledge. Now, since we're going to be talking about knowledge today, I want to start by conducting a little knowledge examination. Here's how it's going to work. It will require a little bit of audience participation. I'm going to show you two images, two different versions of the same image, to be exact. And I want you to identify which one is the correct version of that image. So it's very simple. You'll see that two of the same image. I'm going to tell you to raise your right or left hand based on what side of the screen the image is on to let me know whether that's the correct image. Do you think you can handle it? You think you got this? They are images from popular culture, so you should recognize them. Let's start with Mr. Monopoly. Now, look at these two images. Which one is the correct version of Mr. Monopoly? One on the left or the right? All right, now, to be honest, I didn't think this through because I can't tell which hand you're raising. <laughs> so, put your hands down. <laughs> Do you think it's the image on the left? Raise your hand. All right, I think that is in the majority. And you've chosen the image with the monocle. Well, guess what? You chose the wrong one. Mr. Monopoly does not have a monocle. All right, there's our warm-up. Are you ready for the next one? What about Looney Tunes? How many of you enjoyed Looney Tunes growing up? Which one is the correct spelling of Looney Tunes? Do you believe the correct spelling is on the right? <laughs> is the correct spelling on the right? Oh, I chose the How about the left? Raise your hand if you think it's on the left. Okay, that one seems to be in the majority. Well, guess what? If you chose the left, you're wrong. It's Looney Tunes, as in musical sounds. All right, number three. What about Fruit of the Loom? Don't check your underwear right now. <laughs> what about Fruit of the Loom? Does it have a cornucopia or not? Raise your hand if it has a cornucopia. All right, we're, you're wrong. <laughs> it does not. What about the Berenstein Bears? Is it Berenstein or Berenstein? Do you think it is Berenstain? Raise your hand. Well, there, there, there seems to be a decent number of hands, but they're not with a lot of confidence because they're down here. Um, 
The correct spelling of the Berenstein Bears is with an A. And let's do one last one. What about Oscar Mayer? Do you think Oscar Mayer is spelled with an E or an A? If you think it's spelled with an A, raise your hands. Okay. So raise your hand if you think it's an E. Some of you have stopped raising hands altogether. <laughs> you don't want to be wrong. Well, if you said E, you're wrong. Now, all of these are examples of what psychology calls false memories and what popular culture refers to as the Mandela effect. Essentially what it is, is we have these memories of things that end up proving to be wrong in some fashion. And they're usually wrong because we have a, a misassociation in our subconscious. So here's, think about some of these examples for just a moment. For instance, the first one we did was Mr. Monopoly. When we put the pictures up there, most of you assumed he had a monocle. Well, think about it. When your memory is reaching back to grab, uh, or when your mind is reaching back to grab that memory, it's very easy for it to also pick up a memory of another character known as Mr. Peanut, who was a famous character at the same time, who wore a top hat and carried a cane just like Mr. Monopoly, but who also had a monocle. And your memories can mesh and fuse together kind of like that. Also, in the case of uh, the other example I want to mention, the, the Berenstein Bears, or the Berenstain Bears. In that instance, for, we have this tendency to remember more familiar names that sound with an E-I-N ending. For instance, Frankenstein or Einstein. So our minds have this tendency to blend memories together when it's bringing one to the surface. And this is called false memories. Now what's interesting is that it often happens across in, not just individuals but groups, as was evidenced today. Many of you agreed with each other that one or the other of those options was the correct one, and you were all wrong. We can do that as a collective group as well. And that has become known as the Mandela effect. It's based on the fact that a lot of people thought Nelson Mandela passed away in the 80s while he was in prison. And he lived till I believe it was 2013. I, I know we have some more expert South African individuals over here who could be more specific on when he died, but I'm taking a, I think it was 2013. Um, but we are susceptible to having incomplete and inaccurate knowledge. Do you realize that? Sometimes what you think you know, you don't really know. This morning, I want to talk about knowledge because we think knowledge is information, information you obtain or information that you are aware of. We, we associate knowledge with with acquisition of information, with awareness of information, but, but knowledge is so much more than that. In fact, as we consider what it means to add knowledge, we need to acknowledge that adding knowledge includes intelligent comprehension. Now, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, you'll see that we're to told to add knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge there is gnosis. And gnosis 
means this. Gnosis signifies intelligence and understanding. In other words, in the Greek language, knowledge is not just acquisition of information. It is acquisition plus comprehension. We've settled for knowledge being the ability to regurgitate information. That's what we've ascertained knowledge is. And so when you go through school, oftentimes your evidence of knowledge is your ability to state facts that you memorized in class. But is that knowledge or is that retention? There's a difference. See, the Greek language viewed knowledge as acquisition plus comprehension. And the point is that we mustn't confuse the memorization of information with an understanding of that information. And let me demonstrate that with this. Another audience participation moment. How many of you recognize this formula? Keep your hand up. How many of you know the famous scientist associated with this formula? If so, please keep your hand up. How many of you know the scientific theory with which this formula is associated? If so, keep your hands up. I've consistently seen hands go down. One last question. Keep your hand up if you can explain this formula to the audience right now. And I don't, by, me, by explain, I do not mean tell me what each letter stands for. I mean, can you come up here and explain the uh, mass, hold on, i got to read it, hold on. <laughs> Obviously, I cannot. Can you explain, and I've, where is it? Oh, the mass energy equivalence. I wanted to sound smart up here, and I totally failed. <laughs> totally failed. You see, many of us can say, hey, I know what E equals MC squared is. I've heard of that. Many of us can say, I know that that came from Albert Einstein. And many of us can say, I, I think that's associated with the theory of relativity. Oh, and if you're really smart, special relativity. But few, if any of us, I think I got one over here that could. And he's younger than all of us. Few could actually explain this equation and what it means for physics. That's knowledge, though. Knowledge is the ability to understand and comprehend something, not just the ability to know facts about it. So why must we add knowledge? We must add knowledge because the absence of knowledge, the absence of understanding is spiritually hazardous. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 with me in just a moment. But it's in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 that Paul instructed the church in Ephesus to no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, by Gentiles, Paul is idiomatically referring to unbelievers or pagans or the godless, and he's saying don't be like them. He then identified what it is about this group that warrants such a warning. In verse 18, he described them as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. 
Now, the thing to really notice in verse 18 is Paul's description that those who are darkened in their understanding are simultaneously and ultimately alienated from the will of God because of their ignorance. Here's what I want you to grasp. The status of being alienated from God is not a status you want to experience. Because alienation or separation from God is ultimately the definition of hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says that hell is the state of being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You don't want to be there. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, darkened understanding resulted in alienation from the life of God. You don't want to follow that absence of understanding to its ultimate conclusion. Instead, instead you want to listen to what Paul says in the very next chapter of Ephesians. If you jump over to Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 15 and 17. He counters his instruction to no longer walk as the Gentiles do with the instruction to look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The point is that in order to walk wisely and to make the best use of your time, you have to understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding is part of the knowledge we're going to add, and specifically understanding the will of the Lord. So here's the question for you this morning. Do you understand what God's will is for you? I'm not asking if you can recite a certain number of verses from the Bible. I'm not asking if you know enough Bible trivia to win a game of Trivial Pursuit. I'm, I'm not asking whether or not you have an answer to every doctrinal or, or, or theological question that's ever been posed by man. I'm asking if you comprehend what the will of the God is for you and for me. What I love about God's Word is it can feel complex at times, and at other times it can feel quite simple. There's only four passages that I know of which employ the phrase, this is the will of God, or something similar. The first is in John chapter 6 and verse 40. Jesus said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said that God's will it's for you to believe in him and thereby be saved. If you skip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you can see verse 16 through 18, Paul employs that terminology again. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul says that God's will is for you to praise and to worship him continually. And then if you look also in, in 1 Thessalonians, you back up to the, uh, to the fourth chapter, verses 3 through 6. 
Paul said, For this will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles do, who do not know God. And then there's another statement, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, where Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so when you take what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians about sanctification, about abstaining from sexual immorality, about controlling your own body, and you pair it with what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 about doing good that silences the ignorance of the foolish, we can take away from those things that the will of God is for you to live a pure and a good, God-honoring life. I just summarized God's will in the simplest way with three points and four verses. Because that's how the Bible communicates it. God's will is for you to be saved. God's will is for you to live a life that gives glory and honor and praise to Him. And God's will is for you to live a pure and a good life. Now we could add on a bunch of stuff to all that, but if we really break it down and boil it down, that's God's will. Do you understand God's will for you? Because right now, in this audience, I'm certain there are some people who have not received salvation. That's God's will for you. Right now, in this audience, I'm certain there are some people who hold back and refrain from giving God glory and honor. And that's His will for you. And right now, in this audience, I'm certain there are some people who are not living a pure life, who are not living a holy life, who are not living a good life. And that's God's will for you. Do you understand God's will for you? Because knowledge is not just reciting Bible verses or stating Bible facts. Knowledge is understanding the will of the Lord. And in addition to that, knowledge is practically applying it. Because adding knowledge includes practical application. There's an article I came across that says that 600,000 people have heart bypass surgery annually in the United States. 600,000 people. Now, heart bypass surgery is a procedure to restore the normal blood flow to an obstructed coronary artery, and without that procedure, many patients risk death due to blockages. Now, following bypass surgery, Individuals who go through it are typically told the same instructions. That if they're smoking, they've got to quit smoking. If they aren't eating healthy, they've got to eat healthy. And if they're not exercising, they've got to start exercising. The bypass surgery corrects the current problem, but if the lifestyle doesn't coincide with it, the problem's going to return. Now, that article I was, that I came across indicates that surveys have shown that within two years of bypass surgery, 90% of patients have made none of those lifestyle changes. They, they were at the point where their life is on the line and required a procedure, and they didn't make the changes. They still ignored the doctor's orders. 
They were told what to do to sustain life. They were told what to do to prevent future complications and problems, and they didn't do it. Two years later, two years they've had to make changes, and they haven't done it. That just goes to show that for you and I, having knowledge does not guarantee life application. See, knowledge isn't just about receiving information. Knowledge is knowing how to use the information that has been obtained in the right way. That means knowledge is dependent on what you and I do with the information we get. And the Bible teaches this. In James chapter 3 and verse 13, I've got the incorrect verse on the screen, but I believe it's James chapter 3 and verse 13. James rhetorically asked, Who is wise and understanding among you? He goes on to answer his own question by explaining how wisdom and understanding are evidenced. And he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. How do you know who's wise and understanding? It's the person who can show it. Who can demonstrate it? Who has practically applied the knowledge to themselves and is now evidencing it in their own lives? And James will go on in James chapter 4 and verse 17 to say that whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In other words, If you fail to do what you know, then you don't really know anything, do you? If it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't impact your life, if it doesn't manifest itself in your life, do you really know it? Because knowledge is not just obtaining information. Knowledge is putting that information into practice. See, in the Western world, we think that you know something and then you go do it. But in the world that Jesus lived, they believed that you didn't really know something until you did it. And this is illustrated by one of Jesus' most popular parables. There was a guy traveling to Jericho, and all of a sudden he was mugged and left for dead on the side of the road. A couple of religious leaders pass by, and they don't do anything for him. But then this Samaritan individual shows up. He's the hero of the story. Because he does something to help the injured man. After telling the story, Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the correct response was, The one who showed him mercy. In other words, the one, the one who did something. Now notice what Jesus said next. It should be familiar to you because we talked about it for a year. He didn't say, go and feel likewise. He didn't say, go and think likewise. He said, go and do likewise. Why? Because as one preacher said, you don't really know it until you show it. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is, am I doing what I know? Is my knowledge affecting what I know? is it practically evidencing itself in my day-to-day life? 
Because there are some of us that know what the will of the Lord is for us. There are some of us who know that we need to repent of our sins. But we're not doing it. There are some of us who know that we need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but we haven't done it. There are some of us who know that we need to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, but we haven't taken that step. There are some of us who know what we need to do to receive salvation, which is the will of the Lord, but we haven't done it yet. And there are some of us, there are some of us who have received salvation, who have become children of God, and we know that the will of the Lord is for us to glorify Him in our lives. We know that the, that the will of the Lord is for us to live these pure and holy, sanctified lives, abstaining from sexual immorality, but we're not doing it. And we know that the will of the Lord is for us to praise Him, but we're not even showing up to worship Him. We know what the right thing to do, but for many of us, we're choosing and not to do it. Do we really have knowledge if we're not allowing that knowledge to manifest practically in our lives? James would actually say that if that's you, you're like a man who looks into a mirror and then leaves and forgets what he saw. See, when we look in a mirror, we, we do it for a purpose. We look in a mirror so that we can see if there's anything we need to do. When you got up this morning, you got up and you, you probably looked in the mirror to see if your hair needed to be combed. You probably checked to see if there was anything in your teeth from breakfast. Maybe you tried to see if you needed to put any makeup on. Maybe some of you didn't look in a mirror. But you look in the mirror to see what you need to do to fix what doesn't look right. And James says, if you don't do what you know, then you're like someone who walked up to a mirror, saw your reflection, and didn't do anything to change. And we know that not one of us is perfect enough to do that. Knowledge not only includes intelligent comprehension, but it also includes practical application. Do those two parameters of knowledge define you today? I want to wrap up with two final thoughts on knowledge, two quick thoughts on knowledge. One is that knowledge requires caution. You see, Peter's not the first person to develop a list of virtues, a list of attributes that you need to develop. It actually was a, pro, a, a popular technique in his day. Many uh, philosophers would come up with virtue lists and say, these are the things you need to have in your life in order to be a successful person. We still that, do that today, don't we? But in pagan list of virtues... Knowledge often received a place of priority. Either it would be the first thing on the list or the last thing on the list. But if you look at Peter's list, knowledge isn't first. That was faith. And knowledge isn't last. That privilege belongs to love. Knowledge is just one of the ones in the middle that you add. I think that's worth mentioning because knowledge is not the ultimate goal. 
Knowledge is good. Knowledge is necessary, and you should seek knowledge. Scripture speaks to that. Just go read Proverbs. But knowledge is not the ultimate objective. Do you know why? Because we have this tendency to take knowledge and once obtained, become pretty arrogant. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 that knowledge puffs up. In other words, it, it makes you conceited. And then he would go on to say, but love builds up. That's why love is the more excellent way. That's why love is the greatest of these. That's why love is last on Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter's list, because it's the ultimate objective, not knowledge. Knowledge is just part of the equation leading there. So we need to be careful not to elevate knowledge above all the attributes that Peter identifies in this list. And we also need to be careful to obtain the right kind of knowledge. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 that some false teachers had obtained something that is falsely called knowledge. Earlier in the same letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, we're told that God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so in that one letter in 1 Timothy, Paul sets in contrast knowledge of the truth with false knowledge. We need to be certain the knowledge we pursue is knowledge of the truth. And what is that? Well, in his prayer, his prayer before his arrest in John chapter 17, Jesus praying for his current disciples to be strong and for his future disciples to be united, he said, your word is truth. Speaking to the Father. Truth is found in God's Word alone. That's why Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know, everything that you need to complete yourself, everything you need is found in God's Word because it is truth. You need to be careful to pursue knowledge of the truth, not that which is falsely called knowledge. And finally, we also need to acknowledge that knowledge requires growth. The fact that knowledge must be added to our faith implies that knowledge is not inherent. You are not born into this world with knowledge. You have to obtain it. That's why as a child, your parents have to teach you to walk, teach you to eat, teach you to talk, and teach you to use the bathroom. How embarrassing. You're not born with the capability of cleanliness. You have to learn it. Similarly, you're not born again with the knowledge of every spiritual matter either. Think about when Jesus gave us the great command, or excuse me, the, greatest, the great commission. In Matthew 28, he instructed us to go and make disciples. And then he defined what that meant. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That addresses how one becomes a Christian. And then in addition to that, he said, and teaching them all things that I have commanded you. That addresses how one matures as a Christian. 
He anticipated the need for new disciples to be taught because knowledge is not inherent. And since knowledge is not inherent, it has to be pursued. It has to be sought. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 14 says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. And Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And here's the thing. When you seek knowledge, it's going to result in the growth of knowledge. And we're expected to have knowledge grow. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, the same book we're studying from, we're told to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is that knowledge must not be approached as something that's inherent, nor as something that's dormant. It's something we have to pursue, and it's something we have to develop. but do you want to? Do you really want knowledge? There's a story about a a young man who came to Socrates asking for knowledge. He walked up to Socrates and said, Oh, great, Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. Socrates led the young man through the streets of town down to the coast and into the sea. And they stood about waist deep in the waters of the sea. And Socrates asked, What do you want? The young man said, I want knowledge. Socrates shoved him under the water and held him there for 30 seconds. Then he led him up and said, what do you want? The man said, I want knowledge, O great and wise Socrates. Socrates shoved him under the water again, held him for about 40 seconds. The man came up. Socrates asked, what do you want? man wheezed a little bit. He said, I want knowledge. Socrates shoved him under the water again for about a minute. Brought him up and that guy was gasping for air. Socrates asked, what do you want? man said, I want air. Socrates says, when you want knowledge as you have just wanted air, then you will have knowledge. If you want to add knowledge... It doesn't happen by happenstance. Adding knowledge doesn't happen automatically. Adding knowledge takes time and effort. And it's time and effort that God expects us to invest because He expects us to add knowledge. This morning, hopefully there's been some knowledge shared And hopefully you know a little bit more about what the will of the Lord is for you. Right now, as we bring this lesson to a close, this lesson about adding knowledge, we want to start with this. If you need to respond so that you are doing the will of the Lord, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.